Hi, Greg Perry, the historic preservationist. Welcome to episode 320. Continuing with uh, the beginning of woodwork and uh, uh, I would like to say the history of the world, which began in England. So we're going to continue from the half timber frame house. And uh, this episode is going to be concerned with the timber roof of the medieval carpenter. Any account of the medieval carpenter would be incomplete without some reference to the timber roofs of the Middle Ages, which are one of the outstanding features of the craft of the woodworker. From the earliest times of which we have any knowledge up to the period when the Great Hall is superseded by the Long Gallery, namely the latter years of the 16th century. With the advent of the Long Gallery and the Great Parlor, the former open roofs of oak gave way to the closed ceilings of plaster. Between stone and timber construction, there are certain cardinal points of difference which must be stated here in order to render an easy comprehension much of what follows. Stone construction, especially in the Gothic, is vertical. The lintel is almost unknown in England. From Norman times onward, stone will bear great vertical stresses, but is incapable of sustaining lateral strains and lintels therefore must have thicknesses proportional to their span. It was because of this quality, or absence of one perhaps, that the Roman arch, which is on a construction, construction basis, developed in the way that it, it did throughout the Roman Empire. On the other hand, a timber beam, especially if chamfered, will take a great strain without sagging. Rot, decay, or worms are its only enemies. Wood, however, owing to its nature, demands construction of joints, such as the mortise and tenon, having, grooving, notching, fingering, rebating, and or dovetailing. The jointing introduces another problem, one of which the medieval carpenter had to contend with on all occasions namely the weakening which is inevitable to joining two pieces of timber. With a mortise and tenon, for example, the tenon takes from the strength of the side, the mortise from that of the rail. The same applies to furniture also, but here the considerations are not so serious, as a piece of furniture rarely receives any great strains. With the timber roof, on the other hand, Stresses are present everywhere, and they have to be calculated and provided for if the roof is to have permanent stability. The whole problem of the medieval timber roof was the nature or the engineering proposition, demanding great knowledge and still greater care. One has to realize that many difficulties with which the carpenter of the Middle Ages was confronted before one can appreciate to the full extent the triumph of the achievement. How perfect was this knowledge in the 14th century that it may be gathered only from the rare examples of roof construction of the period which remain. It is the latter days only which 
is defective, such as Eltham Palace and the Hall of the Middle Temple, where the former fine principles have been forgotten or where construction has become debased. It is the same with all domestic arts. The craftsman begins with imperfect knowledge and progresses until he reaches the zenith of his trade. Then the decline sets in, and the older, fine traditions are either forgotten or become depraved. If it were possible to instance examples of the earliest timber roofs, we could trace their true evolutionary order, the development of the science of their construction, noting each advance in its turn. Unfortunately, the wood roof is so old in England that all the earliest examples have perished or long since disappeared. To make the problem more difficult, it is not as if the advance were cumulative, each improvement vanishing the older and more imperfect method furthermore. So we find perfectly constructed roofs of the 14th century, such as in Westminster Hall, at once the largest and finest example in the world, with others of the far later date, which abound in structural errors, as at Eltham and elsewhere. The inventive skill which lifted the, uh, the aisle post of the timber barn and poised them high in the air, as hammer posts supported on hammer beams, is older than we know, probably of early 13th century origin. Yet the roof of, of York, Guildhall, is constructed with posts to the floor. Barn fashion, although it is no earlier than the middle of the 15th century. High or low development of the craft of the medieval carpenter, therefore, is no criterion for age. So we are hundreds of years too late on the scene for this to be a fact. The pitch roof is a great advance on the flat or lean-to types, yet the latter are to be found dating only from the late 15th, if not the early 16th century. With the flat roof, the constructional problems are few in number. The walls must be adequate to withstand the weight, and the beams placed across them must be stout enough to avoid sagging. Transversely, across these beams are the joists, then at the right angles. In the same direction as the tie beams are the rafters. Above all, in turn, close boarding is nailed, and last of all, is the final covering of lead or zinc. On a flat roof, tiles or slates are useless, as wood would percolate through their joints in the overlaps. They may be used safely, therefore only on a sloping roof. The flat roof collects rain, snow, and leaves, especially if any tendency to sagging develops, as is usually does, so the next development is a highly pitched or campered type. The pitch is affected either by chamfering the beams themselves or by furring them up with additional pieces of wood known as furring pieces. This wood, therefore, is known as the fired beam type. From these roofs to the high-pitched or gabled kind is more than a matter of degree. New principles are involved, and these demands some, held some consideration even here. The first new factor, 
with which the constructor of the gabled roof has to contend with is the thrust, the tendency to flatten out and collapse that would be the side walls, either by pushing the walls outward or the rafter ends off the, the wall heads. The second is the liability to wind pressure from the sides, which may blow the entire roof off the building. And the third is a tendency to sag along the length of its apex at the ridge. There are the other minor problems which will be considered later, but before doing so, it may be desirable to define technical terms. So at the top of the pitch roof is the ridge purlin, or ridge, the long beam to which the upper ends of the rafters are housed. In many of the older tool, tool roofs of the domestic type, this ridge purlin is dispensed with the rafter ends being fingered or together, hence the irregularity of skyline, which many of these, these roofs present, owing to sagging and the ridge tiles. From the ridge, down the sides of the roof, are the rafters and where occasionally a thicker one is introduced, at intervals for strength or for other purposes, which will be explained later. This is known as the principal rafter or principle. Both rafter and principle are notched at their lower ends into the wall plate which rests on the top of the outer walls along their length. One of the more horizontal beams fixed across the rafters between the ridge and the wall plate, known as purlins, served to stiffen the rafters and prevent sag in their length. To to alleviate wind strain, wind strain on the slopes of the roof, which would have the tendency to push the entire roof walls outward, vertical posts are tend tenoned into the wall plate and carried down the side faces of the walls, supported on brackets or corbels. These are known as wall posts. The cross beams, which span the roof at various heights, are known as tie beams, when the wall head level and the collar beams or collars are tended into the <coughs> principles at a higher level, a vertical post fixed between ridge and collar or between collar and tie beam is a king post where the two are placed between purlins and cross beams, one on either side of the roof center. They are called queen's post. A diagonal bracket supporting the beam at its wall end is a brace. Where it is curved, it is known as an arched brace. A beam projecting into the hall at right angles to the wall plate and tended into it is a hammer beam. It demands a brace underneath to support it. Otherwise, it would be rest merely on its tenon. The vertical post here is tended into the foot end and into the hammer beam, in which the other is the principal. It is the hammer post. Its function is to prevent sagging of purlins or principles. Sometimes we find two tiers of hammer beams, in which case the roof is known as a double hammer beam. A false hammer beam roof is one where the hammer post or the arch rib is set back from the outer extremity of the hammer beam the latter thus projecting into the hall without any useful function. A perpendicular hammer beam roof uh, is one 
which the hammer post is carried down past the end of the hammer beam, the later being tended onto it. The length, therefore, depends on not on the solid lateral beam, but also on the small tenon at its extremity, which bears the weight of the post and all that it carries. Middle Temple Hall and Elfin Place are both of this preventive type and, although of late date, have required periodical overhauling and restoration in consequence of this defect in constructive principle. In timber frame roof construction, where strength and stability are both of the highest importance, and where every timber has to bear strains, the tenon is a joint to be employed only vertically, used horizontally, it has a, a series of defects incidental to its form. Though sometimes unavoidable, it should always be reinforced by the use of brackets or braces. With furniture or panelings, these strictures do not apply for obvious reasons. The hammer beam roof is a logical necessity when the hall is too wide to span to allow for tie beams from wall to wall or where it is uninhabitable to bring a hammer post to the floor as in barn construction. The hammer beam type is known as a compound roof, one with tie beams but without principles or purlins. This is said to be a single is said to be single framed with both principles and purlins. It is double framed in fact. So between secular and sacred roofs, those of dwelling houses or churches, there is no absolute line of demarcation, not, nor may they be divided into decorated or undecorated. Although we may have the barn roof at the one end of the Hampton Great Court's Great Hall at the other, but between all <coughs> between these are all the stages of elaboration. Any classification, therefore, is subject to wide exceptions. Many secular buildings, such as St. Mary's Hall, Coventry, and Old Guild Hall of the, of the cloth workers, have a semi-sacred character and all artwork until the close of the 15th century was at least church-inspired, if not actually from the hands of monks and lay brethren. There can be no doubt about the secular character of the largest oak roof in the world, that of West, Westminster Hall, the old building of William Rufus, in which the Whitstantide, in the year 1099, the Norman king held on off its restoration. But the original roof, as far as we know, was of timber frame design, double aisled form with posts to the floor, in the matter of York Guild Hall. At least one date, no longer other construction would have been practicable with the available advantage of this period. Even in 1935, only a king master carpenter invested, invested with most royal powers could have attempted the roof which exists at the present day. Master Hugh Herlin or John Godmeston, the clerk of the works, could express any carpenters or other laborers where or whatever found. So with the power to arrest and imprison um, individuals who were copying, 
and to take stone, timber, or tiles, or any other building materials at the king's charges. It was from the royal forest of Petalmode in Sussex. Does the name survive as Petworth? That the oak was obtained, but of the old forest no trace remains at the present day. It is curious and tragic that this mighty roof with its fine Sussex oak, which might have defied the centuries for all time, nearly crashed to the ground, owing to the ravages of the woodworm, a tiny antagonist barely a quarter of an inch in length, yet its, count, its, its countless millions, enough to eat away Herlin's mighty trusses almost to powder. But for one apparently slight oversight, a failure to provide for adequate ventilation to the timbers, no such attack would in all probability have ever been occurred. And H.M. Office of Works would have been sparred some 11 years of responsible and difficult labor of restoration. Today, the great roof is invisibly reinforced with steel and secure. It is to be hoped for centuries to come. Unique as it is, this triumph of English medieval carpentry is little known, even to the Londoner and the seldom seen by the visitor, yet it's nestless under the angle of the Houses of Parliament, so many hardly be dismissed as inaccessible. To those who may make a pilgrimage of inspection, perhaps in consequence of these, uh, these episodes, one or two words of advice may not be out of place. When one stands on the stone floor and looks up into what is almost a forest of British oak, it should be remembered that each timber has its proper purpose and takes its share of strain. Even the great spandrels pierced in carb serve to stiffen beams and braces. Yet I have known persons who would have had been better informed with regard to the whole work as more decoration than not. Greg Perry, the Historic Preservationist, signing out. Thanks, everyone, for listening.